0: From KQED. from KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump announced a landmark deal this week with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain to fully normalize relations with Israel. We'll talk with policy experts about the significance of the deal and what it means for Iran, Palestine, and the rest of the Middle East. And then, how would you describe your pandemic experience in six words? We're taking your responses and talking about some of the best ones with Larry Smith of the Six Word Memoir Project. Submit your six-word memoirs on Twitter at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org, and we may read them on air. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. The United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed an agreement at the White House this week to normalize relations with Israel, signaling a diplomatic shift in the Middle East and a new alliance against Iran. President Donald Trump lauded the deal as historic, but the agreement between countries already at peace with each other could further isolate the Palestinians who immediately condemned the pact. How significant is the deal? We'll talk with policy experts about the deal and other recent news from the region and let me tell you who is joining us for this segment. Bilal Saab is Senior Fellow and Founding Director of the Defense and Security Program, the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a Pentagon official with oversight responsibilities for the Middle East. And welcome, Bilal Saab.
1: Thank you. Good to be with
0: you. Good to have you with us. We also have Dalia Dasa-Kay with us. She is Director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy and a Senior Political science, Scientist with Iran Corporation. Welcome, Dalia Dasa-Kay.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Good to have you with us. And let me begin, Dalia Dasa with you. Uh, I know uh, you and Bill alsab saab know each other and don't often agree. Uh, let me get to the heart of this, because um, Bill Alsab saab did an interview with my colleague, uh, Steve Inskeep, and he said this is a win-win-win. Uh, but you say uh, it doesn't really merit the hype. And uh, let's get your opinion on this, because Tom Friedman says it's okay. a geopolitical earthquake, no less, from The New York Times. Why doesn't it <laughs> merit the hype?
2: Yes. Well, um, I'm, I'm sorry to have to disagree with my good friend um, and New York Times columnist, but um, I should just say that, you know, of course this is a historic deal and significant uh, moment in the region. It's certainly good for Israel um, and the UAE and Bahrain and normalization is always a welcome development in the Middle East. So I'm not suggesting this is a negative development. What I am suggesting is that it doesn't rise to the level of a a, a regional geostrategic shift. Uh, Really all of the ongoing conflicts in the region will be unchanged by uh, by this development. And first and foremost, the core conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians is unlikely to be uh, changed by this. Uh, And the anti-Iran alliance, so-called, you know, certainly is there. But this has been ongoing for nearly two decades now. This is not a new development. Concerns about rising Iranian influence um, have been longstanding, especially since the Iraq war in 2003. So I I think there's a, a bit of hyperbole about this agreement. It's certainly welcome. But I don't think it is a regional game changer.
0: Well, they're even talking, uh, if I may come to you, Bill el uh, about about uh, President Laura Ingram just recently uh, of Fox News said, President Trump deserves a Nobel Prize for this. Uh, it's that much of a game changer. And it's been compared to Sadat going to Jerusalem in 1977 or the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, Arab Spring, all those kinds of things. Is it that big in your judgment?
1: No. And let me just be very clear. I don't think I actually disagree with Dalia. I don't think she disagrees with me either. Um, you know, win-win doesn't mean that, you know, this is a game changer or an earthquake, uh, political one. You know, uh, look, it's I think it's worthwhile to set aside just for a moment the cynicism and recognize that this is really a remarkable episode in the history of the Middle East that at least has the potential. Let's just agree to that to create new uh, political realities, and regardless of the motives of President Trump, I think he does deserve some credit, uh, and the leaders of all three countries do too, they should be praised for at least putting a dent in this cycle of despair in the region. But let me be very clear, uh, you know, calling this a peace accord is as inaccurate as it is disingenuous. I mean, nobody's buying that in Washington or in the region, quite frankly. But what about the notion of political tactic, you know, by the president?
0: It's it's political not only for the president, but for Bibi Netanyahu. But I was just about to ask you whether or not uh, other nations, not to mention Saudi Arabia, but for example, Morocco and Sudan and Oman are likely to join what Jared Kushner calls this uh, circle of peace.
1: Yeah, look, it's possible. But, uh, you know, the Saudis are not biting yet. I think they're in a very different. I think I mentioned that to uh, NPR several weeks ago. Uh, they're in a very different domestic political situation. Uh, doesn't mean that they won't join at some point, but the moment they do, I think this would be a far more significant event because, you know, this, you know these guys speak for most Sunnis uh, across the world. I mean, the king is the custodian of the two holy mosques. And the moment that they join, uh, I think it's a domino effect. Uh, I'm not undermining what the UAE and Bahrain are doing, but uh, the, the real big prize for the Israelis has always been the Saudis.
0: Well, it may be, uh, Dalia is some are evaluating it, a new chapter with the Gulf states for Israel, and it does open up trade, and it means social engagement, it means economic ties, it means dialogue.
2: Absolutely, and that's all welcome. I think the important point to keep in mind is that these are normalization deals, um, and they are not going to usher a new era of peace in the region. These countries, the Gulf and Israel, have actually had long-standing relations. Now they're coming out into the open, which is a good thing. Uh, but let's not forget that they were not at war. These countries were not in conflict. Uh, the UAE and, UAE and Bahrain, in fact, were not even established until two, two decades after Israel was founded. They did not fight Arab-Israeli wars like Egypt and Jordan, uh, who established peace with Israel first. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I think you know these agreements are a bit exaggerated. Um, the cooperation is certainly good. Before even this normalization, this formal normalization, we did see in recent years high-level ministerial visits from Israelis uh, to both capitals. Uh, We've seen interest in cooperation on food security and agriculture, on water. All of those things are in this agreement as well. And that could be a really a net gain for the region. But I think what Bilal uh, was alluding to is important, which is there's a lot of variety across the Gulf. And uh, the UAE doesn't particularly have a lot of domestic pressure when it comes to peace with Israel. In Bahrain, it's a little more complicated. It's actually a Shia-dominated population run by a Shia minority a Sunni minority government. There has been more pushback against this agreement. Uh, certainly, that's a factor in Saudi Arabia, where there'll be, uh, I think, some quite a, a bit of sentiment against normalization. Uh, but from a state-based level, none of these countries in the Gulf have been at war Uh, With Israel um, and in the same way of core conflicts like the Palestinians or with Lebanese Hezbollah um, And other serious threats to Israel. So I think it's important to put this in context But certainly the kind of cooperation that could unfold uh, will be will be uh, positive for the region.
0: Dalia Dasakey, again, directs the Center for Middle East Public Policy and is a senior political scientist with Iran Corporation. Bilal Saab is senior fellow and founding director of the Defense and Security Program uh, with the, the Middle East uh, Institute. And Bilal Saab, I want to talk about Iran. I want to also talk about Palestine. Um, but until 1969, Iran claimed that Bahrain was part of its territory, and it does have a Shia majority, and the Sunni rulers certainly fear some kind of fifth column in that. Um, but this hurts Iran, I mean, and and certainly the United States is trying to get full sanctions again, bearing down on Iran. I don't know if that's gonna be successful with the United Nations, but it certainly allows for Israel, on the one hand, to uh, just fly across the waters if they wanna knock out some of Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, in other words, this has uh, some serious consequences for Iran.
1: Actually, I don't buy that, to be honest with you. Um, There'll probably be increased security cooperation. Maybe they'll share a little bit more intelligence. Fine. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, Iran's fortunes are are quite large in the region. And um, it's way too premature to talk about seriously upgraded defense and security ties between these two countries. Because at the end of the day, Israel really operates alone. I mean, if they don't even have an alliance with us, us, the Americans, as in a defense pact. They're not going to go ahead and start really building defense packs with the Gulf Arabs. There's still plenty of uh, apprehension. I don't want to call it mistrust since they just normalized. But there's going to be a long process before these guys really up their security cooperation and talk about military, like seriously military cooperation between the two sides. So, look... uh, is it music to the ears of the Iranians that, you know, those guys are banding together? No, of course not. But does it really hurt them strategically? I don't think so.
0: Agree with that, uh, Talia das, okay?
2: Uh, Yeah, mostly. I think that, um, you know, in terms of military or covert capabilities, uh, those are already there for either the United States or Israel, as we've seen, and even some uh, recent uh, explosions over the summer, earlier in the summer, uh, against Iranian nuclear assets. Uh, You know, these agreements with the Gulf are not necessary and probably um, are not really a key factor in terms of as much as the rhetoric is suggesting this is an anti-Iran alliance. Um, Those capabilities are already there. The problem with the Iran issue is that the current U.S. policy is failing. This maximum pressure policy is not creating a better nuclear deal or a less disruptive Iranian uh, government. It's in fact increasing uh, regional escalation. It's increasing Iran's nuclear capacity. So the Iran problem, again, just like other issues, Syria, Lemit Yemen, Libya, you know, these normalization agreements are not fundamentally shifting the ongoing conflicts in the region that are unfortunately only escalating, not de-escalating. And I'm afraid, you know, with this normalization deal, um, there is a possibility, there are some risks to this, that it could even in, in, embolden the Iranians and possibly the Turks, which are a factor here too. The Emiratis uh, look at the, Turks, the Turkish uh, um, government as an opponent, and they have their rivalries in places like Libya. So I think this agreement could actually, you know, move the Turks and the Iranians even closer together than they already are. Uh, so there's a lot, I think, of, uh, of some hidden costs, despite some of the benefits of this agreement in terms of normalized ties between Israel and the Gulf. The regional landscape is looking as uh, dangerous as ever.
0: Well, we're going to talk about uh, this more. And I also want to talk, of course, uh, about how this affects the Palestinians, as well as the ongoing conflict in Yemen, which uh, many of these Gulf states are involved in, and certainly the Saudis are involved in, and the United States is involved in. But Before we go to a break here for just a moment, I want to give out the phone number and invite those of you listening to join us. If you have questions or if you simply want to remark about this deal and how it affects the Middle East, if you have some thoughts on that score, we'd like to hear from you. You can give us a call now and I invite you to do that. Our toll free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. A number for your calls again toll free is 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Dalia Dasa Kay, Director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy and a Senior Political Scientist with Iran Corporation and Bilal Yab, who's a Senior Fellow and Founding Director of the Defense and Security Program with the Middle East Institute, former Pentagon official with Oversight Responsibilities for the Middle East. Please feel free to join the program. I'm Michael Krasny. This Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the Middle East and the recent agreement that has been produced uh, with the Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, uh, with us Bilal Yab and Dalia Dasa Kay. And Bilal Yab, let's talk with you about the Palestinians. I mean, we're talking about 47 five million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And there is obviously a split between those two, but they've been left out of this. Uh, Diana Budo, longtime spokesperson for the PLO, even going back, says this is a fig leaf. We got stabbed in the back. Um, it seems to p- pretty much in some ways, uh, put. well, let me ask you, uh, phrase this as a question. Does it, what does it do in terms of Oslo Accords and in terms of uh, what had to be at least recognition of the Palestinians or a second state uh that was part of the whole necessity of moving forward uh, for so long.
1: Well, I think I mentioned it before, actually, in the, in the segment that you uh, are referring to. I, I don't think these accords hurt or help, frankly, the two-state solution and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, regardless of the fact of what the Emiratis and the Bahmanis are saying is that it actually does help freeze the settlements and all that, because those settlements might come back at some point later. Who knows? But uh, this is really not about the Palestinians, and it shouldn't be. That's that's the more important point that I want to make here. The, these countries, Bahrain and the UAE, they have a sovereign right to pursue their self-interest without being judged by outsiders or how their deals with Israel affect others. I mean, it's just a very simple point. You know, pan-Arabism died the moment Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel in the late 70s. So it's not fair to blame the Gulf Arabs for abandoning the Palestinians with whom they don't have borders. I mean, Egypt has borders with the Palestinians and they've done a lot for the Palestinians. As a matter of fact, including bankrolling a corrupt Palestinian leadership uh, that has failed to lead its people. So what the main unit of analysis for me remains the bilateral ties uh, between on the one hand, the UAE and Israel and then on the other between Bahrain and Israel. There's a ton that is good that could be uh, uh, developed between these country- two countries without placing this in a broader perspective and bringing in the Palestinians into this mix. It's unnecessary.
0: Talia okay I want to get you uh, on this with respect to the Palestinians. Do you agree with uh, what your colleague is saying here?
2: Uh, well, not completely. I, um, you know, I do agree that y- y- there's no question the Palestinian issue has been uh, a much lower priority, if not a footnote in the region over, over especially in the past decade, there's much higher priorities with civil wars uh, underway in Syria, uh, Lebanon, uh, Libya and Yemen. Um, domestic pressures of all these gov- of all these states across the region, socioeconomic pressures, youth, they're just higher priorities. So despite the rhetoric, I think it is true. The Arab world has long ago kind of given up on the, the Palestinian cause. That said, there was the Arab peace initiative from the Saudis. So the Gulf did have kind of a stated uh, plan on the books uh, that they were committed uh, to um, to the Palestinian cause and would only normalize with Israel should that conflict be settled. It's clear they've given up on that at this point. Um, and, uh, and the Palestinians have lost out. But I think... What's important to keep in mind here? There, uh, there's some, I think, narrative uh, that's emerging that somehow this deal might still be good for the Palestinians. And there, I would, I would disagree. Um, I think the law was suggesting it's neutral, but I think it really is quite negative for them. Uh, you know, this idea that that the having a deal with israel will give arab states in the gulf more leverage with either israel or the palestinians to move the process forward i don't think it's supported by the historical record uh, jordan and egypt's peace with israel didn't didn't particularly help the palestinians get to a two-state solution there is no mention in these agreements of annexation of settlements of even a two-state solution it just calls for a resolution of this through a negotiated, uh, um, agreement. So, um, and, and finally I would say, you know, the Palestinian public isn't buying it. Put aside their leaders who I agree are, or have not been serving their people well, but recent polling suggests only 1% of Palestinians think this agreement has been good. So clearly they're not buying the idea that this normalization is going to benefit them. And unfortunately, uh, at the end of the day, only Israelis and Palestinians will be able to solve this conflict themselves.
0: Uh, Bill uh, let me uh, sort of get your thoughts about this in terms of what was given up by the Israelis. Uh, they pulled back uh, annexation of the West Bank and the settlements, and uh, David Friedman, the ambassador to Israel from the United States, said this is temporary. He kept emphasizing that, and so to some extent did uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. So we have a pullback which seem to at least mollify but at the same time the emphasis is uh this is temporary
1: yeah look i'm not an expert really on the uh minutia of the israeli-palestinian conflict but for them to emphasize that this is temporary certainly is concerning right because it, it, in many ways it suggests to me that this cell has to survive israeli politics which obviously are always fluid and with you know new governments forming and new leaderships and what have you. But um, the fact that you know this is uh, something that could be put back on the table uh, certainly is not reassuring for the cause of peace. But I want to emphasize one more time, the only obstacle to that peace is the Israelis and the Palestinians, and that's it. And of course, I want to emphasize the Israeli occupation. Uh, it's not what the Gulf Arabs are doing or not doing. At the end of the day, what is still on the table, which Dahlia has mentioned, is the Saudi uh, peace initiative. Now, does those deals really undermine that peace initiative? I don't know. Let's see what the Saudis say, and let's see what they do over the next few weeks or so.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about the Saudis and particularly what's going on in Yemen, but let me bring a caller on and then uh, uh, remind you, our listeners, that you can join us by calling us toll-free right now at 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. or at KQED Forum, or email any questions to forum at kqed.org. I'd... Join us. You're on the air. Good morning.
3: Good morning. i just like to say, both of these, uh, I don't want to even call them countries or nations, the dots in the Middle East map, they really are. They are two real estate owned by one family each. One of them have 90% foreign workers who are extremely exploited by mostly East Indians, Pakistanis, Indonesians, just like Saudi Arabia. Really, this thing doesn't amount to thing. What concerns me the most, though, is that we need peace. And by the way, happy Rosh Hashanah, big part of my family in Egypt are Jews. So I celebrate all of the, ho- all of the holidays. I like to say, just like to end up, the time is not the side of anybody, including Israel. We must get peace done soon. Forget about all of this dark age, sheikdom, I call them, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Emirate, the old shame. Not only the Middle East, shame to the whole world. They are the money, money bags, exploiting poor people from India, from Pakistan, from Indonesia, and let them go to hell. We need peace, real countries like Israel, like Egypt, like Jordan, like Palestine. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you for
0: those comments. I appreciate hearing from you. And uh, let me uh, remind listeners that you can be part of this program if you have something you want to add to this conversation. uh, please feel free to join us. But I want to go back, uh Dalia Dasa-K, to you, and I want to talk about how things figure in Yemen here, because this is one of the most humanitarian, serious humanitarian crises that we're facing anywhere on the planet. And uh, there's a lot of talk, actually, about the Hague International Court opening up an investigation, the uh, United States supplying weapons to Saudi Arabia being used on civilians in Yemen, uh, terrible Consequences of those weapons, um, and the matter seems to be at this point just uh, completely ignored for the most part, hasn't it?
2: Well, it's no question. I wouldn't say it's ignored, but uh, but we haven't been playing a helpful role. It's a um, a a really uh, devastating humanitarian crisis there, uh, and it it has only gotten worse uh, in terms of the the relationship, though, with these deals. It should be said the UAE uh, has uh, uh, withdrawn from this, their engagement in this conflict, uh, which was a positive development over a year ago. The Saudis are still involved, but the concern here, and we haven't mentioned the F-35 potential US arms deal to the UAE that is um, discussed as kind of part of this agreement. It's not written in the agreement, but it's understood that this was, um, you know, maybe less a peace for peace deal than a peace for arms deal. Well, it's to be determined, but, Um, The idea that the US will be exporting one of our most sophisticated um, aircrafts uh, to a a Gulf Arab state, um, even if they're a close partner, There are concerns not only in Israel about this affecting their own military edge in the region, but concerns about um, how these weapons would be used, including in places like Yemen. Uh, So if, for example, the Saudis follow and they kind of request the same uh, type of weaponry, um, and it's not just the F-35s, we're also talking about drones, other destructive capacities. I think this is a real debate in the United States about uh, the continued policy of arms sales to this region, how the U.S. arms are being used, even when we're not directly engaged in these conflicts, I think these are these are issues that need to be debated seriously. And these are kind of the day after questions about what happens uh, with this agreement. And as I was alluding to earlier, uh, one of my concerns is that um, emboldening some of these smaller actors who have been quite active in the region, not always in positive ways, um, could be quite dangerous. So we we want Want To harness the positives coming out of this in terms of uh, positive technology, uh, economic cooperation, and so forth, but we want to minimize the negative And I think Yemen is a, is a very good example of that.
0: Well, you mentioned the arms, and Bill El Sab, I'm going to go back to you on this because not only F 35s, we got the EA 18G, the Growlers, the electronic warfare aircraft, and as uh, Dalia Dasake said, uh, also drones. Uh, a lot has already been sold to the Saudis, billions, but this is, in fact, let me read some comments here coming in on this from listeners. Holly writes, call me a cynic, but Trump and his son couldn't care less about peace in the Middle East. It's about their egos and their pockets, which translates to facilitating arms deals to grease the pockets of U.S. corporations. He has instigated so much violence. Let's not forget that. And a tweet from a listener, Noel, says it's an arms deal disguised as a peace deal. Thoughts from you, Bill Alsop.
1: If you think the Trump administration is unique in that regard, then I think you're mistaken. Uh, We've been selling arms to the Middle East ever since Jimmy Carter, basically. And Jimmy Carter was the one guy who actually was very sincere and he was very uh, uh, intent on actually trying to reduce the arms flows to the region. And yet he failed because of A, politics at home, and B, geopolitics at the time, of course, of the Cold War. The Trump administration is in no way different. Matter of fact, this whole process of over-militarizing the region uh, I would say, escalated under the Bill Clinton administration, where the economics of it were actually codified in uh, in language. So, look, is his rhetoric obnoxious? Does he make it look like it's worse with him than others? Of course, that's his fault. But really, practically speaking, in terms of official policy, I don't think it's in any way different, frankly, from what we've seen before, especially and not to take you too far back to the Obama administration. I mean, it was the Obama administration as a result of the nuclear deal with the Iranians that they sold all sorts of stuff to the Gulf Arabs. So let's not pin this really on the Trump administration because it's an easy target, quite frankly.
0: Well, what about the fact that the Trump administration does uh, sort of promote itself as uh A promoter of peace. I mean, they're doing uh, peace talks in uh, Afghanistan. I don't know where they're going. uh, But the fact of the matter is they've cut back troops in both Iraq and Afghanistan. uh, And the significance of that in your judgment?
1: Yeah, that's bogus. I 100% agree with that, to be honest with you, that, you know, promoting yourself as a peacemaker uh, uh, is as inaccurate as it is disingenuous. And and I think I mentioned that to you right from the start. Uh, You have to remember, many parts of Donald Trump's support base believe that COVID-19 is a hoax and that masks don't work and infringe upon their liberties. And it's that same group, I suspect, that won't be able to tell the difference between a peace accord and an agreement to normalize relations. They also won't know who Bahrain is and who the UAE is and probably won't be able to locate them on the map. So look, when you see Trump in less than a couple of weeks from now repeating over and over again in the presidential debate that he brought peace to the Middle East, most of his constituency, I suspect, will believe. So this is, A clever political tactic. I hate it, but it's a clever political tactic.
0: And it is, uh, in many ways, I think, being viewed that way as uh, political. But yet, at the same time, Daya Dasake, there are people who are talking up the uh, merit of Donald Trump receiving a Nobel Peace Prize. In fact, his name was put in nomination by a Norwegian legislator, by actually a couple of uh, sort of alt-right, ultra-right-wing populist legislators. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they're sort of playing that card, too, here.
2: Um, yeah, I, I don't want to speak to the politics of this. I mean, I think the reality of this is that this agreement, these normalization agreements, as we've been discussing, will not bring peace to this region. All of the conflicts are ongoing and only escalating. And I think that's the bottom line. And I, I agree with Bilal. I, I think the arms uh, issue is a bipartisan problem. It doesn't make it right, though. Um, from 2015 to 2017, just to inject some facts here, uh, the United States sold the Saudis $27 billion in US arms exports and the UAE was was only second to that with 16 billion Um, so our some of our our largest um, uh, clients in the world for our arms exports are in this Arab Gulf region. And I think, and that's across the board, and it's completely true. The Obama administration started this with um, assisting the Saudis in Yemen, and it turned out to be a catastrophic decision. Um, it's continuing in the Trump administration. Uh, the question we have to ask ourselves, is this wise policy? Uh, and is the, are these kinds of policies bringing peace? And I think, you know, I am suggesting that we need to rethink some of these longstanding policies, not just accept that they happen.
0: Well, let's not talk about peace so much as war, because war is going on in Yemen, and the U.S. has supported it for over five years, This Saudi-led uh, coalition, 127,000 deaths and 13,500 civilian deaths. Oh. These these are targeted. In fact, let me uh, go to you on this, Bill el sab There's a lot of talk about war crime charges uh, and uh, going through a foreign court or going through an international court. Uh, how viable is that as you see it?
1: As in us being uh, uh, asked to be uh, tried for war crimes?
0: That's what uh, certainly some are talking about and some are trying to move forward on. Uh, so it seems, yes.
1: Yeah, that's not gonna happen practically. I mean, uh, those accusations, fair or unfair, uh, really practically speaking, don't have merit, uh, quite frankly, uh, because we're just not party to any of those uh, international regimes. Uh, it's that simple.
0: Agree on that score, That's okay.
2: Well, I I agree that most likely it, it won't in practice happen, but I do think it's sending a message, and it's an important message, that there needs to be accountability. There needs to be debate in the United States. Um, at the highest levels uh, about our complicity in some of these regional conflicts. And um, putting the legal issues aside, I think we need to have a a strategic uh, discussion about where our foreign policy is taking us. And decades of these kinds of policies in the region has not made it any safer for the region or for U.S. interests. So um, whether, you know, I think it's true, uh, practically speaking, it's unlikely that U.S. officials will go to jail for these as war crimes. Uh, But the fact that these issues are even being raised, I think, should be a wake-up call with um, the continuation of these kinds of policies.
0: Well, the Hague International Court, uh, Bill al is also uh, talking about opening an investigation against the United States for actions of its forces in Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war. Again, likely to go nowhere in your judgment?
1: Most likely, uh, but I do 100% support what Dali just said as far as the very important debate that should be had in this country as far as our overall Policy in Yemen, and also our overall approach to arms sales. Which, by the way, Dave should know this because I'm a, just like her, a fellow arms controller. But I am, in principle, not against arms sales. But I went, but I am against uh, is certainly not committing ourselves to the very critical processes of helping these guys come up with responsible and effective defense governance systems that actually help them employ these systems and at the same time uh, act responsibly with those uh, weapons uh, that we sell them. So it's really not about the size or the number of arms that we sell them. It's more about how they employ them and what kind of commitment we have to help them sustain those arms and also employ them in manners that are uh, consistent with international law.
0: Well, we have ongoing conflict, uh, not only in Yemen, but in Syria and Sudan and Lebanon and certainly with Iran. Um, We'll continue, obviously, to try to monitor what's going on in this region. But I want to extend my gratitude to our two guests for joining us and offering their expertise. Dalia Dasakey, again, is director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy and a senior political scientist with the RAND Corporation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And thank you, Bill Bilal Saab. al Saab, again, a senior fellow and founding director of the Defense and Security Program of the Middle East Institute, former Pentagon official with oversight responsibilities for the Middle East. Thank you, Bill al Saab.
1: It's great to be with you and great to be with Dahlia. I appreciate it.
0: And I appreciate your our listeners being with us. We're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about, well, six-word memoirs. We've been receiving some and we've been hearing about some. How would you describe living through the pandemic in six words as a narrative? That's all next. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny.